Hello, hello. My name is Ben Hilsinger, and welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. Today is part two of my best of 2020 series to end off the year. I love doing this podcast most of the time, and I'm honestly very grateful that I've been able to talk to some of my favorite players while doing it. If you're listening right now, thank you so much. I know it sounds like I'm reading off a prompter, which I am, but I can't express how much I appreciate and value your attention, and these words are very sincere. If you'd like, please email me at ben at bigfatsnaredrum.com to share your favorite moments of the show, along with any other questions or general comments you might have. They might even end up on the podcast. All right, enjoy the last episode of 2020. And it feels really good to say that. First up is Madden Class. Madden is currently a student at Berkeley School of Music and drums for Mike Dowdy of Soul Coughing, Weedis, Space Junk is Forever, and Robbie and the Houseplants. She is easily one of my favorite drummers today with an incredibly effortless playing style. I had her on the show to dissect her own theories on practicing and technique. I blocked out all the things that I thought were most important, which was flow, technique, groove, independence, uh, transcriptions. And that's like, that's a lot. And I realized that wasn't totally working, trying to hit all of those points. So I'm like, let me narrow it down again. And I just started doing my favorite exercises by Matt Gartska, mm. by James, by David Cola. Oh. And then I realized, again, that was too much. So I was like, you know what? Let me just try and like deep dive on one singular thing, which right now is flow. And you'll realize that that one thing will address many areas as well. Like flow is absolutely addressing technique. It's absolutely addressing groove um, and like subtlety and intricacies, just like whatever you think is training your body, whatever you think you lack the most, really zoom in on that and find ways to pull it apart and work on it for two hours instead of trying to do 20 minutes of this, 20 minutes of that, 20 minutes of this. Like, I don't know if that'll really take you to the next level, but you don't want it to leave you unbalanced either. You know, Mm -hmm. I just know I'm, there's a lot of things I'm comfortable with and a lot that I'm not. So I'm trying to zoom in on those things. Can you define flow, like how you conceptualize what you mean by flow? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, you know, it's to me, it's definitely chops and it's being able to uh, comfortably take a solo, uh, throw in fills without, you know, feeling like the sky is falling because I've definitely been there, you know, just trying to gain some some confidence outside of the grooves that you play you know i just i i think it's patterns and it's orchestration uh and it's just feeling free within that so you you referenced before i want to go back to technique because i really wanted to focus on that with you that you will watch videos of yourself and you noticed my gosh my fingers are doing way more than i thought or you're just you like you acknowledge them so when you play how how aware of transitions between different fulcrums and going to the edge of your finger and using more of your ring and index, you know, pinky finger, you know, how cognizant of you are, are you of that when you're playing it? Uh, very much. And especially cause I've got the mirror next to me. So I'm always like checking out what's happening. Uh, and with my right hand, it's a super cool thing to watch because it takes literally like zero brain processing power to switch from French grip on the ride and using my fingers to lever the stick to, you know, going full on molar technique and just like 
smacking the crash or the hi-hat or something, which is nice. But my left hand, I'm like, how can I be more aware of it? This is going to take a lot of brain power to try and move between uh, the different grips, which is, like I said, good and bad. My body is like totally split. Such a weird thing. And I think I've become way more aware of it recently than I was before because now I'm really trying to fix what I think needs to be fixed whereas before I was fo- I was focusing on other things where I wasn't realizing that technique comes first mm-hmm. before I can get to learning these new uh, approaches to the kit and ways to play like technique is what is holding me back from getting to that next level I want to reach But you don't want to let it hold you back too much. Like, I got to realize at the end of the day, I've gotten this far. I can play what I want and need to play, and I should just keep building on that, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's easy to get too sucked into it and become too aware. You don't want want to let that, like, hold you back either. Did your your development of technique come before Berkeley? I mean, obviously, to get into Berkeley, you have to be an incredible drummer, so... Yeah, uh, my teacher from, like, a very early age was pushing molar technique. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing I learned, and, like, he was helping me with my grip and whatnot. I had a couple teachers who were having me, like, switch my grip. I My first teacher had me hold it, like, almost in my third fulcrum of my first finger, so it was, like, really deep in my hand, and then I had it... Meaning, meaning like, at the base right here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I was almost just pinching the stick with my thumb and third fulcrum, uh, which is cool, and I still do that. Like, if I'm trying to play really fast, that allows a lot of movement for your hands... For I'm sorry, for your fingers to lever the stick. Um, sure. But then another teacher was like, no, that's wrong. You should be holding it in your first fulcrum and having, like, a little pocket... You should see a pocket in your hand while you play. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. That feels good. And then I couldn't switch back the other way. Uh, and now I have another teacher who's teaching me French grip. There is like, there's so many different techniques you can study. But, yeah, in the beginning it was molar and just working on which fulcrum felt most comfortable for me to play in. There's not one way you should be playing. And I think it was Thomas Pridgen who said this. He's like, mm. if you are playing with one uh, grip, you are going to hurt yourself in like 20 years. You're not going to be able to play. Yeah. You need to be able to like move your hand and use the most of your hand. You can't rely on just one fulcrum and one way to squeeze the stick. You need multiple things to be working all the time uh, so you can get, you know, you, so you don't have to work as hard in that one position. Yeah. Uh, so that's exactly what I'm trying to facilitate in my left hand because I feel like at the moment it's trying to do one thing and it needs to be able to move and switch as uh, like fluently as my right hand does or at least getting heading towards that point. There are so many ways we should just be teaching everybody what all of those different options are because you might not know that that's the thing for you to add to your playing to go to the ride like you might just be struggling with playing off the bell and it's like all right well let's learn some french grip that's what's going to help you uh, play a little more with some you know play effortlessly mm-hmm. i think that's the goal and it changes as you move around the kit it's so involved it's wild i, I don't know if we think about it in, enough 
Okay, so I can't have a best of without including myself. So this is an excerpt from the first episode of Big Fat Five, well, the rebranding of it, with Chris Mazzarisi, owner of Big Fat Snare Drum, and myself, dissecting each of our own top five drumming moments that shaped our playing style. This is my number four regarding a certain hi-hat technique, but it morphs into an overall approach to mixing yourself while playing. It's the pre-choruses in the song Evil by Interpol. And uh, the reason why I do this, well, let me just, I'll play it for you guys and then I'll explain why the hell I like it so much. Alright, so the reason why I like, there's actually, yes, I'll, I'll talk about something else in that song in particular, but the band I play in, Eve Six, John Siebels, hates when a, <laughs> like, when you go back into a verse from a chorus, he hates when you hit a crash cymbal, he's like, that part of the song's done, so just go back into the smaller part. And so, I basically rip off that song depending on which song we're doing and how heavy the song is, that instead of hitting a crash cymbal going back into a smaller part, I'll hit the downbeat uh, with an open hi-hat and then I'll stop it so I can control it. Because in that song, yeah, he alternates between going from like a 16th note of an open hi-hat to an, a full beat that stops when the downbeat begins, or sorry, when the, when the backbeat begins for the next note. Yeah, just alternating back and forth really something I do all the time with my hi-hat. I kind of use that as a choked symbol all the time. I love it. That's really, I, I do something similar to that, too. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And before we move on to the first or the next one for you, in that song in particular, he also, when he's not playing and when he introduces his drum beat back, because that song he kind of comes in and out, he doesn't play the hi-hat right away. He does the downbeat of the bass drum and then doesn't start the hi-hat until the backbeat. So it'll be like, um, one, two, ready, go, boom. You know, it's just, I don't know why I like it so much, but it's made me think outside the box. Like if you're playing something and then you want to go back to the hi-hat, regardless of the thing I was talking about before, it's okay if you want to just like do a fill, start the beat, and then just bring the hi-hat in at some point during that next measure. It doesn't have to be, you know, crash symbol, then back to the hi-hat right away. Sometimes just let that crash breathe and then even come in on beat three or four. It's just a cool way to think of how to transition. I think that's, uh, I think so far a common theme of, of everything we've spoken about is, is just letting stuff breathe. Yeah, and hi-hat stuff. <laughs> hi-hat hi breathing. Well, it, yeah. it's funny that I remember I had like a weird um, like epiphany watching a drummer in a live setting maybe like 10 years ago and it was actually two drummers i don't even remember the specific show but it was like kind of a local-ish band show mm -hmm. and i remember seeing the first drummer and then it was like it was house gear and it's the same microphone same pa and you just see two different drummers on the same kit and it really goes to the i think like a lot of the drummers balances from the hi-hat mm -hmm. so a guy who's like mashing it versus a guy who plays that hi-hat with finesse like, mm -hmm. I think for me, I learned something from that experience where I think it's like a finesse hi-hat and I just beat the piss out of the kick drum. I think like more kick drum, finesse hi-hat, and just like crack snare. That's the jam. Next up is one of our most information-packed episodes on the top five most common mixing mistakes with Mike Avenue. That's really hard to say. 
Uh, yeah, Mike is a well-established L.A. drummer, engineer, producer, who's worked with Scott Weiland, Lil Nas X, Tori Kelly, and Leslie Odom Jr., just to name a few. We actually had to split this conversation into two episodes because Mike is a treasure trove of knowledge, and in this clip, he discusses one of the most overused, yet wildly misunderstood worlds of compression. Be sure to check out our whole conversation. I've honestly re-listened many times, and it's really cleaned up my mixes. So I think like I think everybody does this when they start, you know, everybody's like, whoa, and just like all the way up. And oh, like, yeah, sounds amazing, you know, and I, I'm I'm a sucker for that, too. Like, I love compression on everything. You know, I just think it really can be very, very musical um, and can also completely ruin your sound. Yeah. You know, so I think because I do a lot of mixing stuff too. Like I get things from people, um, that have been already recorded. And sometimes I get stuff. It's just like almost unusable to the point that I have to sound replace it. And I guess a lot of the time it's like, it's too squashed or like the transients are gone or there's like, there's no low end. You know, I think a a big thing of, of what I've noticed with certain plugins, especially like, let's say, um, kick drum right and then you you put a uh, some compression on your kick and all of a sudden there's no more low end you know even though it sounds cool like you got a good snap to it or whatever if you bypass it all of a sudden you get like your 60 80 hertz back and a lot of the time it's the compressor getting rid of it so like i i think a lot of people make mistakes with that stuff where they just like they confuse the fact that you know you think that you should use this much compression on your kick or you think you should use this much compression on your snare drum um and then it then it kills the vibe um do you have uh, any starting point ratios for everything yeah so i think like generally like my my initial go-to is somewhere between three and four you know like i uh yeah i think i usually start there but sometimes i end up going way lower like two two or three on a snare drum sometimes like obviously four to one like becomes like the main snare drum ratio and i also find too like it's very dependent on the drum like especially for people like us or or anybody who's recording their own thing like you can't just do like uh you know like the standard 1176 settings and then that's the setting on your snare like you really got to try and be musical with the way that you apply it. So like maybe the attack needs to be a little different or the release should be like a slightly different. It's like really dependent on the decay of the drum. Um, and I think a lot of people just like, here's the preset and like, that sounds great. But if you, if, if you play with it a little more, you start to realize like you can actually get a lot more out of it and also not going for the generic thing, you know, like picky, the 1176 distressor like i'm all for that i use those when i track down and and uh uh but when i mix i try tons of stuff stacking multiple ones like little bits of compression on top um sometimes you really don't need it you know it's like it also i think shouldn't be one of those situations where you put compression across your everything because you think you should um or vice versa not using it when you think you shouldn't you know, like I use compressors on hi hats a lot, which I think sounds really cool. Um, and uh, sometimes, like, I need my toms to smack way harder, so like it works for that kind of application. But I just think generally, I think people pay too much attention to the theory behind 
why you should compress something or like being told like this is what you do on your snare drum or whatever and then it makes this it makes the tone generic you know you just you just end up with the like eh sound when maybe before you might have had something cool but then again like when you get to the mixing stage of it there's always more you know like whether it's like again that's why i was saying Let's just say I sent you my stuff. I already have all those compressors and everything on there. Then it's kind of up to somebody to to, to determine, like, do I need seven, eight, ten more compressors on this? Or is one compressor in parallel going to do it? You know, and that's what I mean by, like, where to put it or, like, how to route it. So I think sometimes, let's just say you get something and it sounds amazing. All of it might be enhanced by just having like one parallel compressor of your entire drum bus. So you put nothing on the, the let's say you have 10 drum tracks, you put nothing there. Then you have all of that routed to one drum channel, which is your drum bus. So that controls all the sound. Um, and maybe you put nothing on that. So you've just got it there. Then you can duplicate that. And then annihilate that one you know what i mean so that one like what you would usually do with any kind of parallel compression thing when you say sorry but, to interrupt but like when you say annihilate are you talking like 20 to 1 ratio like ridiculous like that every, try everything okay. all buttons in sometimes just sometimes really four to one but just like really heavy gain reduction like minus 20 okay okay sounds really good or uh a lot of times, like people don't do with their 1176, is like the eight and 12 button engaged together in the middle sounds amazing. Um, you know, so like you can isolate the buttons, you know, and I think I don't see that many people doing it, but somebody had told me to try it one time, and then I just found like eight and 12 engaged, and then like really pummeled has just like it's just got a thing. Um, and then you just blend that into your mix and all of a sudden your entire mix explodes. You know, I think the same thing applies if you just, you know, parallel compress your kick, your snare and your toms in the same kind of way. So, again, just having a separate channel next to your main bus that you send certain drums to. Um, because sometimes it's just all it needs to pop through. And you don't need to, like, really dynamically smash everything else. And at that point, it really becomes more of a character thing than it does, like, a control thing. Hey, y'all. I wanted to... <laughs> I can't say. I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by 5.5 snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. 
but I went to his garage, his his you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum, and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com, just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve Six tour, and I didn't keep it and i regretted it ever since then just because i was trying to pinch pennies at the time and i just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye Next up, we have Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. I was uniquely nervous about this one because Mike once hosted the Modern Drummer podcast with Mike and Mike, which was one of my favorite shows. It's weird to talk to someone in real time when you've listened to their voice for years. Anyways, Mike discussed how we can all have a tendency to overthink what we practice, and I love the way he puts things into perspective. So, enjoy. Obviously, that's a classic, and I think any any drummer eventually hears that, and they have to figure out what the hell's going on. And especially if you come from a marching band background, you can hear all that. But for mm-hmm. me, again, this was something my brother wanted to play. He learned the guitar part, so I had to figure out the drum part. Um, my brother's six years older than me, so he had a bit of an advantage as far as coordination and <laughs> dexterity. Um, <laughs> but I'm left-handed. I'm left-handed. I chose to set my drums up right-handed because I committed to what I was seeing on MTV. So I made—I remember making the decision, is the rack tom going to go to the left or to the right? And looking at MTV and just deciding, everybody does a rack tom to the left, so I'm going to do that. But I'm left-handed. And I didn't want to play open-handed because nobody did that. There was no Carter Beaufort at the time that, that was on MTV. So I learned crossover, but I led with my left hand for everything. All my fills, everything was leading with the left hand. Try to play Sunday Bloody Sunday, left hand lead. And you're just punching yourself in the face the whole time. Okay, yeah, okay. So this tune was when I decided, what am I doing? I'm learning right hand lead. So this was the the song that forced me to just become right-handed as a drummer. Yeah, and it's just singles. That's what was so magical to me. Like when I really started learning, I was like, it's just singles. You're just moving the, the hands around. And it's... Sort of repetitive, but sort of not. So it just sounds, it has that vibe to me. Like, I don't know what the hell he's doing, but it's not out of reach, you know? Yeah, when I when I think him, I mean, singles are a big part of his playing. Like in the, um, the deca, 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 uh, in the name of love. Uh, What's yeah, that song yeah. called? That's the other one where he's doing a similar vibe. Yeah, it's just, he's just doing a very extended, uh, you know, accented single stroke roll. And yep. it's not hard, but to make it sound that clean is very hard. Yep, and both of these tunes are on Rattle and Hum, which was the first, like, rock movie that I saw that I just, like, I have to do that. I want to be playing arenas someday. 
So his, I mean, your style, you talk about it a lot, is 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 very much, you know, you, you give yourself limitations within, like, rudiments and stuff, mm-hmm. and that's what you practice with a lot. And so, I mean, you're kind of saying Larry was a big part of that. 100%. Yeah, I mean, like, I think any young drummer, I chased the most difficult stuff for a long time, but when it came down to what I actually played, mm-hmm. you'll never, very rarely would you ever hear me do anything more than a single or a double. Even flams would be for accents only. I, I you know, a hybrid-type combinations i'm kind of anti like patterns and licks and linear kind of makes my skin crawl like all that i just want to play powerful simple you know interesting but not complicated all right guys buckle up this is from my episode with randy cook one of my favorite people in the world who drums with ringo Starr, mick jagger alanis morissette dave stewart and blah 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 He's great. He's played with all the famous people. Randy's energy is infectious, and this is one of the most engaging episodes I've ever had in the podcast. I'd sum up this clip, but just listen and take notes. If you're playing studio and it's a rock track, you're going to play dun-ka, dun-dun-ka, right? You're going to play that. Yeah, If sure. your click track is quarter notes, which you're already supposed to be playing, yeah. dun-ka, dun-dun-ka. And what if you're like doing pretty good that day and you're right on? The second you're right on, what don't you hear anymore? Click. The click track. Yeah. As soon as you don't hear the click track, your brain, without telling you, goes, I don't hear the click track. Play a little off so I know that it's there and I'm, I'm we're together. And what happens is you actually end up thinking more about playing on the click track because it's only there. so why not have an eighth note shaker why not have something no one else is going to hear it whether that's live studio you can call it you know oh it's kind of cheating though isn't it because now it's really easy to just fit quarter notes over yeah sure it is but the end result is you feeling more comfortable not thinking about the click now it feels like there's like a percussionist standing beside you playing along. You guys are just sure. playing together. And that therein, you're you're good to go. Like the minute you stop thinking about I need to play in time, I need to play in time, I have to be on the click. Um, then you can you can now be a drummer, you can be a, a musician and perform. But uh, if you've got that quarter note hammer <laughs> cowbell, like to me that's intimidating. That's like pressure to me and you don't ever want clicks to be pressure on you like it can't make you feel anxious you know so well that makes me feel uh, a lot better because <laughs> i always would prefer give me the give me give me 30 second notes just uh you know <laughs> yeah right who cares that nobody's gonna hear it except you so I don't, yeah. you know whatever gets a job done obviously there are different ways to work on one's time and and then i really feel that that playing with clicks um when you take them away uh, really just <clears throat> helps your your time overall i mean it it it's basically trained you to be in 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 as much time as you can of course we're all human you take away a click you're gonna drift you're gonna go up and down but that's okay that's amazing but you're yeah. not gonna like 
leap forward 10 BPM. That's not going to sure. happen anymore. Promise. You know, like, <laughs> you know, I love that you're saying this because you're the authority for two reasons. A, just from the first thing I said, which is you feel good. And I, we don't have to talk about this because I know that you've talked about it a lot. But, I mean, you've gotten the Ringo approval. And that he is the <laughs> ultimate walking, sitting, whatever he's doing, he is a metronome. He is. So he uh, is. you are definitely the authority on that. So that makes me and l- the listeners, oh, that kind, makes me feel good. Kind words. And you keep saying, I feel good. You're such a flirt, man. I mean, really, <laughs> right on the podcast. I mean, you think well, you'd save it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, let's let's jump into the next one. Yeah, let's do it. I'm so excited when everybody was talking about how brilliant, and it was. Trust me, there. I don't think there was a drummer alive that didn't go home and 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 shed uh, Rosanna by Toto and and mm. analyze that <clears throat> that Percaro beat. When I heard "Fool in the Rain" with John Bonham by mm. Zeppelin, it was slower. And it ha- it's exactly the same elements as far as the as the triplet um, yep. thing. Uh, it really beat home how integral and crucial it was to play my ghost notes uh, way softer than I thought I was playing them. Like mm-hmm. I thought I am. I'm not playing them loud. I'm playing them softer than <laughs> the big snares. Yeah. And I was absolutely, but why didn't my? I would play "Fool in the Rain" and it it just didn't sound. I'd listen to it again. I'd listen to it again. And I'd go, okay. The difference between his loud snare and the little guys is way larger than what I'm doing. Like it's just there's way more spread there, like you know. And to use the proper words, there's more way more dynamic range. But regardless of the of the the bigger words, the ghost notes were barely there and the the big ones were in your face the kick and snare was just smashing you in the face and all Mm -hmm. of the triplet stuff was underneath it hi-hats ghost strokes and that groove oh my god you gotta just play like 30 (laughs) seconds of that groove it's right off the top i don't need to give you a minute it goes it's literally from zero but you know many have many have uh attempted to emulate that but you know Many have also failed, and the only reason is because it's, that's the key. The key, obviously, having a, a, a very smooth triplet feel, but playing that, being able to play your left hand and your right hand soft, but then belt out a snare drum on two and four, that was one of the things that changed my playing forever, you know? It, it's, it'll be with me forever, and... I, and uh, you know when you hear it. You know when you f- see a drummer, hear a drummer. You hear it on a recording. You see it live. You go, oh, that guy, him, he gets it. Like, he, you <laughs> yep. can see it. You see the spread, the dynamics, the stick heights. And some guys just do it naturally. Some people just, they, just the way they play. Amazing. But some people, it doesn't come as naturally. So you just, all you needed to do was go, just what you think is soft isn't as soft. Play softer. I mean, that's it right there. And it's hard. It's actually hard to do that. And so you got to slow down and blah, 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 all the crap that we do and we learn stuff. But <laughs> if you, if you know, 
it's yeah. So you just take your time, you slow poop down, and uh, and worry about how hard you're hitting things or not hard. And all of a sudden, you, you start to realize the world is much bigger when it comes to drumming, because it's not you know because it can be all soft or all loud. There's absolutely. Dude, if I'm playing a Nirvana-type song, I'm going to smash the shit out of that crap. I'm going to use a 20-inch crash and, you know, Godspeed for the for the well-being of that symbol. <laughs> but yeah. that's because that that you got to have that sound. If you're listening to Van Halen, man, that, that crash symbol was like a layer of sound that just went... Yeah. Like, through the entire... You know, but... Uh, you know, we I, you know we talk about bell the bell of a ride symbol and all that stuff, and we all know that it's like a fire alarm if you don't keep that under control. You know, yeah. And and that's where that's where you see it. That's where you see that that someone hasn't just taken the second and gone. Oh, wait a minute, crash loud? Yes. As soon as I went to my bell, bell loud? No. It's not. <laughs> it's so. It's so annoying. So the next guest is The Steve of Steve's Donut, Steve Gould. He's played with Sarah Bareilles, Matt Carney, Al City, Ben Rector, and countless others. He's an extremely thoughtful player who takes no note for granted, as discussed in this clip. Also, his episode is basically tied for our most listened episode. Enjoy. That's like the third time around that that moment has happened in the tune, like the like the turnaround prior to a verse. He's got that like Afro-Cuban thing happening, and then dragging the snare drum along, like however you want to count the tempo. If these are the quarter notes, then those are the triplet eighth notes, and yeah. he plays a figure that takes the triplet eighth notes. Like he like he goes to straight eighth notes and then just quarter notes and it feels it feels like he's got the snare drum on like a dial on a drum machine and he's just like turning the dial down like yeah it's, you know like in Ableton like it's just uh, like via processing it's just like be like a downturn in tempo like a uh, what do they call it Dicello Rondo or whatever um, like it's it's slowing down manually like someone's imposing a slowdown on it but he's yeah. but he's just like playing that and he's just accessing his knowledge of subdivision uh i mean there's a there's a bunch of reasons why that track would stand out to me that whole record uh mm -hmm. one of which is just like jeff buckley singing like you know like a like a hindustani vocalist on like a ravi shankar recording or something like he you know jeff buckley's singing like an angel uh while also playing in like rock context uh all that stuff was pretty influential for me when i first heard that music in like i guess it would be like 2000 or 2001 when i first heard that stuff and yeah. then listening to the complexity of matt's like uh subdivision awareness that's I mean, mo mostly what I'm saying is that it sounds like a dude who plays jazz, understands world music, understands ryth rhythms that aren't just rock and roll, and then revisiting a rock and roll context with that understanding and having the kind of nuance to bring uh, into those little moments that are just like f kind of flying under the radar, but they, uh, like those details just 
man, it gets me going. I'm, I'm so into it. It's so crazy as a drummer thinking that something you do could it's such a, it's definitely not a throwaway, but something so small could influence someone 20 years later or, and continue <laughs> to influence someone. Such a cool, like just make every note matter. No note left behind. <laughs> yes, yes. I have a, a friend in, um, in Nashville who says that you don't ever play notes that are neutral. You, the notes that you're playing are either helping the song or they're detracting from the song. Mm. So you've got to treat every note that you play as if you're trying to be helpful. Because, I mean, I feel like I remember uh, the periods of my life as a drummer where I thought the decisions I were making were like more or less neutral. Like I just kind of play whatever I want. It didn't matter. Not mm. realizing that if I'm not aiming for my notes to be helpful, then they're probably unhelpful. Like the thing is probably worse because I'm playing those notes and I'm just telling myself that they're neutral and that it's fine and that it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I can just kind of like keep myself entertained with all of these extra notes that are actually just bogging the whole thing down. Okay, so here's a little background on that band. Happy Apple, they're all from Minneapolis. Uh, the drummer's name is Dave King. He's really oh, well that's known. that's Dave. That's Dave. Uh, he's not known for being in that band because uh, Happy Apple sounds so similar to The Bad Plus, and The Bad Plus has just always had a lot more of the music industry machine behind it in terms of marketing and whatever. Uh, but Happy Apple is a lot older than the bad plus i think happy apple formed in like 96 or, or uh, so and um that's michael lewis on saxophone michael is in uh bon Iver. so oh, okay. if you recognize his tone like on a tenor like a, i remember when i guess it was uh the second bon Iver record where some like saxophone playing started showing up like in the band uh, and I'm like, man, it sounds mm -hmm. like Michael. And then I found out that it was his, his sound is really signature. And I, I just, I really love his musicianship in general. Um, he was, a he played bass in Andrew Bird's band for a while. He's just, uh, Michael's oh, okay. one of the, one of the like staple of staple corners of, of the Minneapolis music scene, which is where I'm from originally. Uh, that's Eric Fratsky on bass and he's playing electric bass, even though it's like a jazz group, you know, like upright bass is maybe the more typical sound um, but the electric bass affords all of this um, polyphony like playing more than one note at a time almost like a guitar which as you get to know Eric like he's he's first a guitar player he's in a bunch of metal bands in the Twin Cities and um, like he plays the bass like it's a guitar a lot and it it really yeah. helps in that group because the saxophone is a monophonic instrument so to have a uh, instrument that can play chords and intervals and then and then the great Dave King on drums, who was my teacher, uh, like 1999. I, I met Dave in 98 and started studying with him in 99, uh, 2000 and 2001, all like real intensely. He was a groomsman in my wedding in 2002, and we've been close friends ever since. Uh, that particular track, uh, I think that was recorded in 2000 or right around there. Um, I was around for a lot of the recording of that record and I remember seeing him 
seen those guys play that song live a few times before it, it ever turned out on a record and he's using a mallet on the snare yeah. drum and then his other hand is just his hand like not like a stick and he's he's doing a ton of muffling of the drum manually with his hands so that he hits it and it sustains and then on the next hit when he hits it it's totally dead because his hand is there and he's kind of like lifting the hand up and down and then like going over to the floor tom hitting the floor tom and doing the same kind of like controlling of the sustain of the instrument which is something that up until that point i'd never really considered like the, the drums aren't something that i thought of sustain as like an option for me to influence have influence on as the player like obviously the the bassist in the band like you know strum a note and then grab it and it doesn't sustain anymore and i guess you can do that with cymbals right like maybe at like the end of a song i hit a cymbal and then grab it so it doesn't sustain but the snare drum having a, a length to it that i would cut off um that i just had, had never thought of that i when i mm -hmm. saw dave when I saw Dave playing that song maybe for the first time, uh, would have been like 98 or so. I was only 18 years old and just, like he, he just broke a lot of the rules for what I thought the drums, you know, the way you would play a drum set. I had just, I had myself in a box about how to play a drum set with a bunch of walls and parameters in that box that I didn't realize I had put there. Yeah. And watching him play and that track in particular, the way he controls his touch, he's playing softly and like just the 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 rhythms and the shape of the sustain uh, it, it really it really changed me like as like i said it just expanded the box that i had put myself in as far as how to play a drum set it's like you use sticks and he's like he's got mallets and you have sticks yeah. in both hands and it's like you know he just has a stick in one hand and then you you know you just hit the drum and let it go and he's like nope i'm gonna hit the drum and then i'm gonna stop it and then sometimes i'm gonna hit it with my hand already on there and it's going to sound like a weird kind of blip compared to the actual tone that the drum can produce all of that stuff was paradigm shifting for me yeah i mean i'm very jealous dave's mind works in a very specific very out of this world way i mean with the with the rational funk thing he's one of the funniest guys ever <laughs> we can just see with his humor how his mind is so he looks at things so differently so that's awesome yeah. at such a young age you were influenced to looking at it that way man that's uh it was an absolutely essential link in the chain for who i am as a musician now like that dave king is a creative genius uh and not mm -hmm. only is he just an absolute juggernaut badass at the drum set he's also really articulate and very well very well spoken about subject matter that is inherently dense and complex like understanding art the way that he understands it, you, you can't, it doesn't, it doesn't work very well to just kind of grope for words and try to like come up with metaphors that don't work and then say to the student, like, you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Like it, it, they're just not yeah, going to learn yeah. anything that he never did that. He always just yeah. had really eloquent, uh, effective ways to convey these really deep points. And again, like at age 19 when I met him nobody was saying to me hey by the way he's really avant-garde and really out there creatively like no I just assumed that the way he thought was how everybody thought yeah and and then it wasn't until a lot later that I was like oh that dude is special and I got a front yes. row seat to that kind of creative depth uh when I first started taking lessons from him it was $20 an hour and 
then after about six months of that, he offered me free lessons in exchange for driving him around to some of his gigs because he and his wife at the time, like she was working uh, like a night situation and like needed the car. He's like, Steve, how about, um, can you drive me some gigs coming up and like, I'll just give you free lessons instead. Maybe we could do like two lessons a week to make up for it. And I'm like, um, yes. <laughs> so now yeah. I'm getting, now I'm getting two lessons a week for free and I'm driving him all over town to his gigs that he had with various people and getting to like watch the show and hang out with the band afterwards and meet these people and rub shoulders and like see what it's like on the real, like on the street level of what it means to be a freelance musician in Minneapolis. And it was all like unbelievably formative in terms of my development as a musician. And I, I would not be where I am now if it weren't for those years. That's awesome, and I'd love to have Dave on the show eventually too. His his choices, I'm sure, would be. <laughs> yeah, I know I wouldn't know any of them. <laughs> yeah, but but they'll all matter, man. Like he'll he's like they I said, will. he's he's a thoughtful dude, and um, he has a, a an unbelievable gift as a communicator. And that's the show. Be sure to check out bigfatsnaredrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at bigfatsnaredrum. The audio you're hearing was edited in part by Isotope RX8 Audio Editor, so go check that out at isotope.com. Cheers.